Hey, if I haven't met you before, my name is Jim. Thanks, Sherry. Uh, we are really glad that you're here and joining us today. And I just want to cut to the chase, waste no time. I, um, this week, had, a, I think, what is as deep a philosophical question as you can possibly ponder. And it just felt like it came up to me, especially in light of uh, what happened this week and yesterday in particular. And I wanted us, uh, I just think every human being has got to think about this question. Uh, go ahead and put it on the board. This question, who day, think day, beat them buffaloes? <laughs> who day, who day? Come on! <laughs> it's not like we beat somebody that didn't matter yesterday, guys. We beat Nebraska in Lincoln. Oh, man. I, I, I was, we, we figured out how to wire our TV outside underneath our carport, and so I was watching the game out there, and I was screaming at the TV the whole time. And some of you guys know that your wife looks at you like this every once in a while when you're yelling, and I just, man, I'm telling you, I am going to turn 45 here in a couple weeks. I am still not mature enough to watch football, period. <laughs> and I will do it again today at 2.30, so I can't wait. Um, all right. Hey, I want to uh, tell you about something that's happening this week. Uh, before Bill and I, uh, Bill Stevens and I kind of founded Ascent five years ago, uh, he did college ministry for years. I did middle school ministry for years, and I love middle schoolers. I'm going to tell you guys, all you adult types, you're really nice, you're really neat. I love middle schoolers more. I don't know what to say. I just, I, I, my brain works with them well. And so uh, this week, our middle school ministry kicks off again for the fall. It's called Altitude. Guys, here's why I'm so passionate about it. Um, did you know that uh, the, major the vast majority of people who follow Jesus say that they would um, made that decision at age 13 or younger? And so to, to be a part of a middle school ministry is so huge. I did it for 10 years myself. Here's a little picture of me back in the day. Uh, holding a couple guys. I was like, you know, this is like 1999 or something. I was 25. I just love it. And I'm telling you, if you are in middle school or if you have middle schoolers, you're a parent, I really want to encourage you, get your kids to Altitude that starts this Wednesday night. Okay, we uh, have been doing a series called Surprise Them. And the idea is kind of what Jackie and Brian were talking up about here. We want to figure out a way as a church, as a vision for our church, how do we surprise people with the generosity of Jesus? How do we take the generosity of Jesus and we see that happen out in our community? We, we don't want our vision to just be about getting into a new building someday. We don't want our vision to be attending on Sunday mornings. We want our vision to be that God has done something in our lives that then makes us go out and surprise people, surprise people with the generosity of Jesus. And, and so, man, these last few weeks, we've talked about stories around looking at Jesus' generosity, and Bill, a couple weeks ago, just kicked my butt when he, he said, he, his big quote was, you don't get to choose who you love. If, if those of you who are here, you know when he was, I just felt so convicted. It doesn't matter, regardless of what somebody else thinks, how they vote, what they look like, you don't get to choose who you love if you're following Jesus. We are called to love people regardless of those things. And I left that thing going, he's so right, and that is so hard. How do we move from the generosity of Jesus to our generosity? 
Today we want to look at where, where is the transition between Jesus' incredible grace and generosity and how does that now move into our own generosity. And it ain't easy, right? Uh, this week, I was a good dad. My son turned 16, and instead of making him go to school, we gave him a fly rod that morning uh, for his birthday, and we told him he was going to school, and when the turnoff came to go to school, we just kept going straight, and we went right up I-70 into the mountains. And we said, we gotta try out that fly rod, and he was pumped. So we went up to Silverthorne, and uh, we went out to the Blue River. He caught a nice fish on his new rod, and for lunch, we went to the Chipotle, that's sitting up there right on the blue, if you know where that's at in Silverthorne. I got out of the car and I started walking into Chipotle and I noticed there was kind of this beat up white car sitting there right next to ours. And I looked a little closer and I noticed on the side of the, the reason I noticed is on the side of the car, he had all this stuff on it. And I looked and I was like, man, he's got bumper stickers, giant bumper stickers. If you know uh, Jason from Friday the 13th, those old horror movies, he's got bumper stickers all over his car of the guy with the chainsaw. And it's all graphic, and then he's got, like, uh, stickers of blood dripping down the side of his car, and there's just all these scenes, and I'm just like, who does that? I mean, yeah. So it gets worse. I walk around the back. I'm heading into Chipotle. I look back at his car. On the back of his car, on the back window, there's this huge sticker that just says, I'm a porn star. And then, so, and then, and then he's got all kinds of, like, graphic pictures on the back of his car. And I'm sitting there going... I sit down and I start to feel something inside me like, okay, now I'm mad. I, I, I just start to feel like anger in me of like, who is this guy? I'm with my kids and we're looking at your porn star car. And I, I, I feel like this like anger starting up in me. And sure enough, a couple minutes later, I'm not exaggerating this walk. This guy walks out of the Chipotle like this. <laughs> just like grooving his way to the porn star Friday the 13th car. And he's got his hair, and I felt inside of me this incredible urge to punch this guy. <laughs> judge me. Please judge me. And then I felt that I looked down and I saw this rock, and I was like, I would love to pick up that rock and chuck it through the back of that sign, right, on the back of his car. And see, I, I don't know what it was, and I had to stop myself and go, man, whoa, what's up with that? What brought to the surface that kind of, like, quick anger toward a guy that you don't even know. And you guys know, translating the generosity of Jesus and then out to the world, to someone else, it sounds good. But whether it's the guy that you don't know who has bumper stickers you don't like, or it's somebody in your family, it's a lot easier to talk about than it is to actually do. Today, I want us to look at how do we actually do it? How do we actually move from Jesus' generosity to our generosity in the world. And it, man, I'm telling you, it's key not only to the vision of this church, it's key to us as who we are. As, as For those of us that would say we follow Jesus, this is really important. Here's what I'm going to do. I want to, um, some of you guys know this guy. I want to, for those of you, it'll be an introduction. There is a guy in the Bible whose name started as Saul. He later changed his name to Paul. And he actually is responsible for writing the majority of the New Testament of the Bible. An amazing guy, but he has an amazing story too. I want to I give you a little glimpse of his story. And you all know, uh, part of just what makes me such a great pastor is my artistic skill. So I want to um, draw Paul Saul's life for you in three pictures. 
kind of started out like this. Saul, that's a book. Uh, that's a book. <laughs> so, Saul was a by-the-book guy. Saul was a guy who was known as a Pharisee. That means like the ultra-religious people. They were committed, this is during Jesus' day, they were committed to making sure that everybody followed the Old Testament law. If you pick up a book in, the, uh, in your Bible in the Old Testament, it's called Leviticus, and you start reading it, number one, you'll pass out in the first you know, 30 minutes because it can be hard to read. But, um, but also you'll see all the different kinds of uh, what's called the Levitical law in those first five books of the Bible, the Torah, that the Jews, the Pharisees, thought were so important to following God. In fact, the Pharisees were convinced that if the people stopped following all these Old Testament laws, that God would punish them. And they, they would point back to a time in their history when they were forcibly taken out of their land to a place called Babylon in exile. They said, look, see what happens. When you cross God on the law, God punishes you by doing this. So during Jesus' day, these Pharisees come along. Paul's, Saul, Paul's one of them. And he's saying, we got to make sure nobody breaks the laws. He was a by-the-book guy. And in fact, they would make laws on top of the laws to make sure that the original law never got broken. Very important. This is, this is their identity as a group. So... There is no bigger heresy. Nothing could be worse than when Jesus showed up and not only questioned some elements of the law, but made a claim to be God himself on earth. Yikes. That's the ultimate heresy. Jesus claiming divinity. And so when Jesus is now gone, dies, rises again, ascends, Paul, Saul now, is kind of leading the charge of the Pharisees. And what he resorts to as a way to stop the early Christians, which they just called themselves the way, to stop the early Christians, Paul, that's a sword. I, it looks like a sailboat, but I, that is totally a sword. Um, I, the reason I do this um, my wife was an art major, and uh, every time I draw, she just finds it so attractive. Uh, you know, as if the bald head wasn't enough. Like I, I, I'm, so this is for you, Karen. So, so that's a sword. He starts killing Christians. Saul goes out on a campaign to kill people, who, the, the original followers of Jesus, who were saying that they believed in Jesus' death, resurrection, that he was God on earth. Saul goes out to start to kill him. He's a by-the-book guy who has now escalated it to the next level, which is violence. It is killing Christians. Until something happens in his life. Unbelievable. He goes out on one of his campaigns. This is going to be my best drawing yet. He goes out on one of his campaigns. This would have been perfect had I not run out of room. He hops on his horse. <laughs> his lizard horse. <laughs> Actually, the Bible doesn't say he gets on a horse. But he goes to Damascus. So he, he goes on this trip. He's on his way to find more Christians and kill them. And look what happens in Acts chapter 9. It says this. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. 
He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, right? It doesn't matter who it is. They're following Jesus. I'm going to take them. I'm going to kill them. Back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine this moment? Here he is on the road, and there's this encounter with Jesus where Jesus asks him, what are you doing? Saul says to him, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now these next words, I'm going to show you the next words of Jesus here in a second. These are so important because I want you to stop and think, in our day and age, if someone in power, if someone has power and their followers are being persecuted or harmed, and that person has the power to destroy whoever is doing the harm, what do they do? Of course they wipe them out. Of course they harm in return. Right? I mean, we... We live, obviously, in a culture, and it's just human nature to, to harm the people that harm you. This is what we do as human beings. So look at what Jesus says now to Saul. He says this, he says, I can't wait for you to die, Saul. In fact, I'm thinking I may just speed up the process and put an end to you. You've been so bad, so awful, that you're going to pay for it all. I, Jesus, can't wait to personally oversee you being punished forever. And then in Greek, it actually says, like this, right? A little laugh. That's not what it says. That's not what Jesus says. And thank God he didn't. This is what we'd expect him to say. This is what we would expect anybody that we know in his situation to do. He has the power to destroy an enemy and he doesn't do it. Instead, what he says to Saul is, he says, Saul, get up. And he sends him along, and he prepares people ahead of him to actually take care of Saul. And guys, you talk about generosity. Jesus doesn't just like then tuck him away in the corner somewhere and just says, hey, you've done such bad stuff that I'm just going to kind of plant you over here. He actually cares and leads and guides Saul so much that Saul becomes the greatest force of the church in the first century, bar none. The guy, like I said, wrote most of the New Testament. His life is completely turned around and changed. Why? Because that verse that I wrote for you isn't true. Because Paul, Saul, experienced unbelievable generosity. Grace of Jesus. Man, what is it about God that when he should be punishing us, instead he's punishing himself, he's, he's dying on a cross on our behalf. That's unbelievable generosity. Do you see that? Unbelievable grace. Have you experienced that? Have you, have you felt that, that generosity of Jesus? The generosity of God, do we, do we wake up realizing it? Because what happens in people's lives, almost, almost 100% of the time, what happens when you tangibly get to experience that generosity and grace of Jesus for yourself 
it's almost always going to lead to change. You're going to change. And that's exactly what's going to happen in Saul's life. First his name changes, and then his life follows right behind it. Um, I want to show you a quick video. It's not a quick video clip. I love this, so I'm playing the whole clip. But I think for me in modern movies, theater, one of the best images of the grace and generosity of God is what you see in uh, the play Les Mis. And I know a lot of you love it. If you haven't seen Les Mis, just the quick synopsis is there's a guy named Jean Valjean who is put into prison, slave labor camp for 19 years because he stole a loaf of bread. 19 years later, they let him out on parole, but he has to, everywhere he goes, he carries this, these papers that say he's an ex-con. And so nobody wants to feed him, nobody wants to take him in until one day something unbelievable happens to him. Watch this clip. These are papers. I'll sleep in the stable. Please, I'm hungry. Get out. For you are weary, and the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you, there is bread to make you strong. A bed to rest till morning, rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today, bless our dear sister and our honored guest. Silver, we caught this man red-handed. Get the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go 
with you. But remember this, my brother. Seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for Exactly what Jesus does with Paul is he takes a murderer and he forgives him. He shows him that kind of grace. That, I mean, I get all weepy every time I watch that thing. It just kills me because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. And I don't care if you've grown up in the church and you, you look at yourself and you think, oh, I'm better than the guy who drives that car with the bumper stickers all over it. We're not. At the core of who we are is somebody who's turned our backs on God, and God rescues us. Guys, the reason I'm harping on this is I, I, I believe so firmly at the bottom of my heart that people who have experienced Jesus' generosity for themselves are more likely to show it. If we have felt this generosity that has led to a change in us, we're far more likely ourselves to do the next step, which is to show generosity to somebody else. Or call. Or call as people that have been rescued by Christ is to mirror that generosity now to other people. And I know that it gets whacked up and I know that we're going to make mistakes and I'm off at Silverthorn and it breaks down. And I think it's important for us to talk about where it breaks down because this looks nice and easy, but it's not... I was thinking about that time with, at Silverthorne that I told you about. Where did it, why, what breaks down there? I think for me, often what breaks down is right here. I've experienced Jesus' generosity toward me. It's led to a change in my life. And yet when and then it comes to show generosity to somebody else, it breaks down. And I think often it's because just very simply, I forget. I forget to think daily, to wake up in the morning and go, Lord, you, you rescued me. You've shown me such incredible grace and generosity. Now, who are you going to put in my path that I can go do that with? I, I did not pray that prayer before I took Josh up to Silverthorne. And so I, I'm totally unprepared. That's where it breaks down is I forget so easily where I come from. I forget so easily what's in my own heart. I forget what God has rescued me from. Man, if it's been a while since you've experienced that, if it's been a while since you've thought about that, go back. Go back and remember. You know, I think for some of us, maybe you're sitting there thinking, I never experienced this in the first place. In fact, I, I, don't, I can't relate to this idea of understanding Jesus' generosity. I want to I ask you something. Um, would you, if that's you, Starting next week, we are going to go through a series called Invisible God. 
And the idea of the series is going to be how do you actually experience for yourself a God that you can't touch, hear from, see? How do you practically have that happen in your life? And so I hope, I hope you'll join us at because we're going to go right to the heart of this. Because it all gets short-circuited in some ways if, if we don't have that tangible experience with, with God ourselves at the beginning. So that's what we're going to do starting next week. So it can break down here. It can break down here for me. But I think it can break down in another way too. Um, I, not last week, but the week before, I went backpacking. And some friends and I are really intense fly fisher people. So we, um, we got all our stuff. We had planned for months. We had discovered the spot up in the Wind River Mountains up in Wyoming. I shouldn't say that out loud because I don't want any of you going there because it's such a great spot. It's a secret spot. Don't tell anybody. So we, we had charted out the spot. It was 12 and a half miles in. It's my ninth trip into the winds. We almost never see anybody in the winds because it's remote enough once you get in there. I was so pumped, you guys. I had... I found this spot. We, you know, we'd seen pictures online of this guy. We kind of deciphered where he was. Don't post your pictures of big fish online because I will figure out where it is. And so we go in, 12 and a half miles. The first day we hiked in, it was snowing on us. So we're, we're going hard and we're not as young as we used to be on this. So it's, it's hurting. And have you ever backpacked when you've got the huge pack on and the trail becomes wet and, and sloppy? So you're going uphill and you're sliding with each step, oh my gosh, that is so hard. So I'm just thinking every step, these fish better be good. These fish better be good. So we go up and we go over this little pass and we come down into the lake and we set up for the night. We are exhausted sitting in the tent, but I can't wait for the next morning. And specifically what I can't wait for is at the head of this lake that we're camping on is an inlet where the water comes in and fish tend to congregate at the inlet of uh, streams that come into lakes. And so I'm like, man, we are going to kill it tomorrow morning on this inlet. So we wake up. I'm all fired up. I get my fly stuff together. And we start marching up real early up the lake. And I spot a couple little cruising fish. And so I pop out there. And I'm casting at them, trying to catch these guys. I kind of, while I'm doing that, I look up the lake. And up at the inlet are three dudes already there. And I just, I, just, I just shouted out loud, oh, no. And, and Phil's like, what, what? You know, thinking I'd hurt myself. Oh, there's three dudes up at the top of the lake. And, and what's worse is, and, and so this is before I moved to California. So I really like California now. But before, like in college when I was learning to fly fish, I had a friend who just referred to fly fishermen he didn't like as Joe California. It was just a phrase he used. And Joe California was the guy who's like decked out in all the like incredible great gear. They've got everything that's perfect, all the gear, $1,000 fly rod, but they do not know how to cast. And so I'm, I'm looking at these guys up front and this guy's going like this. And I started thinking, he doesn't look like he's fishing. He's looked like he's waving in a 747. Like <laughs> this is not how you fish guys. It's not like you're out on the tarmac trying to get some plane in there. But he's doing this with his, you know, perfect gear. And I'm going, Joe California has our spot at the top of the lake that we hiked 12 and a half miles for. And I can feel in myself, ah! I start walking up there and I'm like, what am I going to do when I, because you've got to talk to him. 
And I'm, I'm walking up the lake, and I, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to blow them off, whatever. I know I tell a lot of bad stories about myself. Can I tell you guys something I actually did okay, just for once? We're walking on the trail, and I just, I feel like I hear this little voice say to me, bless them. Bless them. Well, I walk up there, and the three guys are there, and there was actually five or six more guys with them. And I, my first thought was, we should have just, like, backpacked through Central Park in New York or something, you know. But this, this little voice is saying to me, bless them. I go up to one of the guys, hey, man, how's it going? Great, my name's Tom, and I'm from Columbus, Ohio. We're here, and man, this is the trip of a lifetime. I'm like, yeah. And I, but you know, I, I said to him, that's so great. What are, you, what are you guys using? You catching some fish? He's like, yeah, we've been trying, but we haven't really found it out yet. And I said, well, why don't you try this, this, and this, and see if that works for you. Yeah, you know, we're also trying to find a campsite. I said, you know what? We actually have a site right next to ours. You ought to think about coming down. There's a great site right next to ours. Come camp right next to us. And if you guys need anything, if you need help starting your fire, if you need help with whatever, we got everything. Just come on over into our campsite, and, and we'll help you out with that. Wow. That's so nice. Thank you. You know? You guys, I did something right. Wow. I got to live in that for a second. Um, here, here's what happens, though. I, I think what can happen is, for some of us, maybe some of us have grown up in the church, and you've heard the term the gospel before, the good news is what it means. Sometimes we've defined the gospel as this. This little quadrant right here can be our version of the gospel, that God loves me, died for me, that I can have a relationship with him. No one forgive me from my sin. And so I've, my life has changed because of it. And we define the gospel in this quadrant right here. But the gospel is bigger than that. In fact, Jesus' definition of the gospel is far bigger than this. If you read Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, you will hear Jesus define what the gospel is. He says, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is breaking through. The kingdom of God is the idea that, guys, what God wants to happen in the world happens. That people are blessed. Not just us, not just me. It's not just that God dies on a cross for me. That's not the full gospel according to Jesus. Full gospel is this incredible idea that we are saved rescued by Jesus, our lives change, we show that and mirror that generosity to other people. And our prayer is that their lives are changed too because of it. We don't just tolerate people. We don't just accept people. The radical idea of the gospel is that the kind of generosity you saw in that Les Mis clip happens from us to God and then we do that in return in a shocking way. We surprise them. We surprise the culture that has an idea about Christians and the church as being a negative one. And we turn it on its head and we say, we are going to show the kind of generosity that Jesus showed us. We surprise them with generosity. And when we pray that 
lives change because of it. And we pray that people have the opportunity to have their own experience with Jesus and the cross for themselves. Man, this isn't in itself the gospel. This is, that's the gospel. That God's kingdom is breaking through in the world. Man, do you want to be a part of that? I do. That's what it's all about right there. And so even in the Wind River Mountains, there's a little glimpse at play of like how I could perceive the situation and how God wants me to perceive the situation. I'm going to end. I want to show you what happens to Paul. So our guy Saul Paul is, has this amazing generosity of Jesus. What does he do with it? How does he then translate that out? Look at, look at this story. So he, he, um, he's got a problem now. Our buddy, our buddy Saul Paul has a problem in that he was by the book. He was going around killing people, had this encounter with Jesus. But now the same guys that he was partners with, the Pharisees, now want to see him see the sword, right? He's now kind of converted into their way, and so now his old friends are his enemies. And so now he's on the run, and he goes throughout the entire Mediterranean sharing the news of Jesus, and it was amazing how fearless this guy was. But he's going around, but it meant a lot. He, he suffered for it. And one of the ways he suffered was in a town called Philippi, which he'd later write a book, Philippians, to. So it gives you a little context for the, the uh, letter that he wrote to them. But look what happens when he gets in Philippi. The people are opposed to him. And, and here's what happens. Miracle. Uh, this is what it says. It says, a mob, this is uh, from Acts chapter 16. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, the guy he was traveling with. And the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. That would not feel good. They were severely beaten. And then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. Now, guys, back in this time, if you're a jailer in the Roman Empire and you let somebody escape, how do you pay for that? They kill you. They will kill you if you allow your prisoner to escape. So the stakes are high for this jailer. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Get them as far in as you can. The stakes are high. We can't let these guys escape. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Now, don't read the board. Look at me for a second. Stop, stop looking at the board. Look at me. What do you think they're praying for? If you're in jail, you think unjustly, and you've got more work to do in the world, what are you praying for? You're praying that God will release you. You're praying that you will get free. Certainly, Paul was praying that that night. And look what happens. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Okay, for those of you who are skeptical people, you read this story and you go, really? That's what happened? Can, I want to just ask you, suspend your disbelief for a moment. Um, if there is a God of the universe, this might be something he could handle, first of all. And second of all, don't miss the big point. There's a big point coming here about what I want you to see. Don't get caught up in this. So all the prisoners' chains fall off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. Why would he do that? The Romans are classic for making you suffer. They are not worried about if the lethal injection hurt or not. 
Okay, the, the Romans are going to make sure if they kill you that you feel it. That's, that's what they're famous for. And so the jailer's thinking, I know that death's coming for me. I'm just going to get it over with, and I'll do it my own way so that I don't have to suffer. Right? That's what he's thinking. Guys, and meanwhile, where do you think Paul and Silas are? They've been praying for a, mir- a miracle to get out. What do you think they did? If you were in jail praying for an escape and an earthquake came that unleashed you, what would you do? You would run. You'd run for the hills. Look what happens. This guy's going to kill himself. Paul's still there. He could have gotten away. He could have gotten away. Instead, he stays behind and he says, but Paul shouted at him, stop. Don't kill yourself. We're here. Do you guys realize by staying behind and not running, Paul is putting his own life at jeopardy? He's putting his own life at jeopardy for the sake of this guy that he doesn't even know that, in fact, he should actually probably hate. This guy is his jailer. He doesn't run. He stays and shows him incredible generosity, life-saving generosity. The jailer called for the lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be right with God? I I have never experienced anything like what you just did. What do I got to do? Because I'm in. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Paul had the generosity of Jesus Christ that led to change in his life that then he remembered, he didn't like me forget, he remembered that daily. I wonder if he was praying in that jail cell, get us out of here in some miraculous way and I'm gonna stick around and show generosity to that jailer. That's a totally different level of thinking. But that's what Paul does, which leads to his generosity, which leads to a complete life change in that jailer who is now experiencing the cross of Christ for himself. Man, that's the kingdom of God. That's what happens when we listen to the Lord. We remember what that incredible saving act of God is in our lives when we experience it for ourselves, and when we understand that the gospel is not just me, but the gospel actually is that every person would be blessed. Guys, when when we're talking about stuff like Go Teams, this is what we want. And, And we really are praying that every person in our church would grasp the fullness of this. Before we move on to this next series, would you pray about this? Would you ask God in your own life, who is it that I am supposed to bless? Is it part of a go team? Is it your neighbor? Is it somebody in your family? Is it in the morning, tomorrow morning, waking up and praying a prayer that says, God, remind me today of your generosity and put somebody in my path that I can show it to? Man, you pray that prayer, watch out. What could happen even this week? Somebody will show up. Some guy driving a car with a bunch of bumper stickers on it is gonna show up and you're gonna have a chance to bless them and surprise them. God, help us to do that. It's so easy to talk about and so hard to do. Lord, we thank you for the generosity that you've shown us. 
we thank you for the generosity you've shown this church. I pray, God, that you would make us a group of people that very humbly embrace that and reflect it to the world. Help us remember your love in our lives and then move out in the world and just surprise them. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And we pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen.